I literally sent the manuscript as an attachment to an email to my editor with the subject line, surprise, because, <laughs> you know, she didn't know this was coming. It wasn't under contract. And she read it and said, oh my God, I think we need to publish this right now. I was in the middle of a three book deal. I had written two of the three books and I knew what the third book was. This was not it. I've been called a women's author so often. And yeah, I have a lot of women who write my books, but I was so tired of being called a women's author that I tracked my email for three months. And 49% of my fan mail comes from men. Can we talk a little bit about the adaptations of some of your books and how you found that <laughs> we process? <can. laughs> yeah, I mean, my big adaptation was of My Sister's Keeper and it was a disaster. Oh, it was terrible. I way prefer the first draft. <laughs> Me too. There's nothing I hate more than getting an editor's letter, which is like, that's when your editor is like, oh my God, I loved it. It was so great. I, we're so excited to publish this. And then you get a letter and it's like 40 pages long with everything that you got to fix. And I'm like, oh, but I thought you loved it, you know? Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And I'm not in this one. Natalie's well, in this you one. are. <laughs> in some ways what I mean by that is Natalie landed what I'm going to describe as her dream book interviewee and it was too good to say no to and at the time the only time that the interviewee could do I think I was on solo childcare wasn't I whilst yeah, Mrs W got jabbed so um you definitely had the most fun that afternoon <laughs> we can say that much for sure <laughs> uh but um so I said and knowing just how much this writer means to you, I said, you've got to do this one on your own. You, you, I can't do it. Don't say no. You've mm. got to go ahead and do it. Now, tell me it was worth it. Yeah, it was absolutely worth it. Although I had the hugest list of questions and some of them really geeky. And obviously I didn't get through all of them because even though it's like about 50 minutes, the chat, which is a long time to spend with a writer anyway, uh, and for somebody to be so gracious to give up their time. But even so, I was very conscious of, of you know, just trying to ask the right things and what I thought people would want to hear and um yeah I was I think I was quite I always say this I, I think I was quite babbly at the start like blah, 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 I think you're great um, <laughs> but that's to be expected and uh yeah it was fine you know so, I've noticed I do it you said it so you you're the babbler with your nerves or whatever right? yeah do you get, I you, do okay can I guess what I think you do yeah go on I think you give like very not intense but quite a serious uh, what you think is a really well-structured question yeah, and uh, take far too long over it. <laughs> Almost as if I'm struggling to form it in my head, because really all I'm thinking is, oh my God, it's whoever it is that I love. you. <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of, you know, we're human, right? Um, yeah. I think we should say that obviously this is just a little uh, bestsellers trio mini series for a sort of, sort of three of three, series three, little three episodes that we wanted to get out before Christmas, because there's been so much good reading and writing going on and I'm sure like lots of people out there our lives have been kind of packed but um yeah we still just love talking about books so wanted to do this yeah this is where the joy lives um and we right fought here. everything else we fought <laughs> everything else off so that we can try and maintain a bit of it so uh trio then what what have we got who've we got so uh, today is Jodie Pico, and then there's going to be Giovanna Fletcher and then we're going to talk through our best books of the year briefly briefly we don't do anything briefly <laughs> well, I've kind of put that in because I'm looking at my list already um because we're going to record that soon and yeah it's, it's quite a long list but hopefully mm. it will be entertaining interesting and engaging wow <laughs> <laughs> you just went really wreathy and honest I liked it 
<laughs> well, without further messing about then, let's go straight to, uh, now you said Pico, did you? I did I would Pico. go Pico. Is that the right thing? That so is, if I, I said believe pic- that is the correct so Picolt would be wrong. Yeah. I, I always used to say Picolt, yeah. but I think it's Pico. Yeah, I got it from you. Yeah, not, sorry. Not wishing to pass the button. Just throwing you right under the bus there. <laughs> Anyone would think I was the Prime Minister. So without further ado, let's hear from the afternoon when on her own, a very giddy Natalie Jameson met the very amazing Jodie Pico. Jodie Pico is one of my favourite writers. I'm just owning that, putting it out there right at the beginning, even though she's staring at me on a screen and it's a bit embarrassing. Wish You Were Here is her 27th book. She's had so many bestsellers. I won't list them all, but titles you may recognise or have hopefully read include A Spark of Light, Change of Heart, 19 Minutes. Her stories are bold. They offer moral dilemmas for the reader and they tackle topics that many of us find difficult to know how to address, such as racism, abortion, LGBT, LGBTQ plus rights and eugenics in the case of my sister's keeper. So Jodie Pico, thank you so much for coming on Bestsellers. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. You're so more than welcome. Um, <laughs> I promise not to fangirl too much, but I assume that you're probably used to a bit of that anyway. It's very nice. It never gets old. It never gets old. It's fine. You can do whatever you need to do. Yeah, people saying you're great. It's okay. It's much better than the alternative. So totally, yeah. <laughs> and I'm also going to be honest about wish you were here because when I read that this is a book that reflects the pandemic that we've all just been through, my initial thought was like, God, do I really want to read mm-hmm. a book about that time? I obviously did not enjoy that time. I was very fortunate. I didn't lose anybody particularly close to me, but there were lots of challenges in the past eighteen months and. Yeah, you just kind of wonder because it's such recent history. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to go through it? So, what was your th- thought process in wanting to write something as it was happening and unfolding? And presumably, mm-hmm. you weren't having a great time either. <laughs> so, first of all, um, it's interesting you say that because of all the advanced reader reviews that I've had of this book, I have had the best reviews of my career. And everyone <laughs> starts off by saying, the last thing I wanted to read was a book that looked at the pandemic, but this was the book I needed to read. Yeah. And that to me is about the highest praise I could get. Um, this is the book I never wanted or intended to write. And when the pandemic started in 2020, I went into lockdown very seriously because I have asthma and I was really scared. You know, my lungs are wonky on a good day. So I just, mm. I couldn't imagine what they would be like if they got COVID. And I wound up um, not leaving my house for 15 months until I was fully vaccinated. Um, The only things I did was I would go outside and I would go hiking for six to eight miles a day, uh, either alone or with friends from six feet apart. And um, that was it. That was all I did. And I really felt lost because my life does not look like this normally. Normally I have a a suitcase sitting in the corner of my bedroom because I'm always on the go somewhere. So I, I was really um, confused mm. at the beginning of the pandemic and really sad. And I, uh, I actually got a call from this woman, Jenny Boylan, who I'm, I was supposed to be co-authoring a book with for 2022. And she said, uh, my schedule just completely cleared. How about you? So we decided <laughs> we were going to sit down and work on our co-authored book together um, in the beginning of 2022 in the p- pandemic. And we did. I was totally faking it until I made it, you know, like I I knew how to do research. I was doing it on Zoom and I was trying to get back into the flow. And then I sat down. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, this is how you write a first draft. Okay, let's do this. And we finished a great first draft of this book. And then it was late in 2020 and I was still locked 
in my house mm. and there were still no vaccines and I didn't know what to do. I was really quickly losing sight of who I was. So I decided I wanted to write a book that kind of helped me organize what had happened in 2020. I wasn't thinking about publishing this. I was writing it as therapy because going mm -hmm. to my desk every day really gave me a sense of purpose. So I started to wonder how authors will tell the story of the pandemic. And I stumbled across a story about a Japanese tourist who was going to visit Machu Picchu and the country closed and he got stuck um, there in Peru. And I remember seeing that story as well. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of going home, he became part of the community and he taught martial arts to the kids. And he was, he basically, you know, lived there for months until the, the locals petitioned the government to open the site up so that he could finally see what he'd come to see. <laughs> and he got what nobody does, which is a private dawn viewing of Machu Picchu. <laughs> and I thought, wow, how interesting to be in paradise when the rest of the world is going to hell. And all of a sudden I had a seed that would help me tell the story I needed to tell. And I have never been to Peru and I was sure wasn't going anytime soon in 2020. So <laughs> I started to think about bucket list destinations I had been to and the Galapagos was one of them. Uh, I'd taken my kids there years ago when they were little and it was one of the best family vacations we ever took. And I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe I can find somebody who got stuck in the Galapagos. And sure enough, I did and tracked him down, interviewed him, a young Scottish man. And he, in turn, introduced me to the families and the people who became important to him when he was stuck there during lockdown for months. So, did you, so were you chatting to them on Zoom or mm -hmm. phone calls? and Totally Zoom. Yeah, it was all Zoom and Skype and, you know, all virtual. And um, I began to come up with a story about a woman named Diana O'Toole, who is turning 30 and who has her entire life planned out perfectly. She lives in New York with um, her very perfect surgical resident boyfriend who uh, works at a New York hospital. And she just knows he is about to propose to her on the bucket list trip they're taking the next day to the Galapagos. Uh, she has the job of her dreams and she is on the verge of getting a massive promotion at Sotheby's where she works as an art specialist. Um, she can imagine all the high watermarks of her life unspooling in front of her because she has plotted it all out. And the book opens on March 13th, 2020, which is the day that New York City shut down. And her boyfriend comes home from the hospital and says, I can't go on vacation. They're not letting me go, but you should. You should because it's paid for. Mm. And she does. And she steps out of her comfort zone because she doesn't speak the language. There isn't cell service. There's very bad internet. So she doesn't have any connection to her boyfriend or anyone at home. And uh, she's basically at the mercy of strangers when the island locks down for what she thinks is going to be two weeks and what turns out to be much longer. And, you know, the book is really for me about how in moments of trauma, what are we told? Put one foot in front of the other, go forward, keep going through it. But when the moment is March of 2020 and the world looks nothing like we think it should, how do you keep going forward? Yeah, That's really what this was about. So I finished the book and I was like, okay, well, this is my thought experiment for me. This is my therapy. And I gave it to a couple of friends who are writers and they both said, wow, this felt like the hug I couldn't get in 2020. They both came out with almost the, almost the exact same line and they felt very validated. All their fears and all of their sadness and all of their, um, I think, uh, phobias kind of flared up as, as happens when you read about what you just lived through. And they felt so, um, they said they felt it was very healing for them. And I thought maybe this isn't just therapy for me, maybe it's therapy for everybody. And so I, I literally sent, the manuscript is an attachment to an email to my editor with the subject line, surprise, 
because you know <laughs> she didn't know this was coming it wasn't under contract and she read it and said oh my god i think we need to publish this right now wow. and you know we basically broke a land speed record getting it out in a matter of months so when you say there's a couple of things on that when you say sure. on the business side of things mm -hmm. you sent this email attachment um yeah it, you weren't under contract was that you 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 kind of do like rolling two book deals or something like that or yeah so i had um i was in the middle of a three book deal and i knew what um i knew i had written two of the three books and i knew what the third book was this was not it <laughs> so you know they basically had to they made this the third book and then had to negotiate a new contract but nobody was <laughs> expecting a book for me this year basically i've been writing a book every two years and um you're going to be getting one every year from 2020 21 and 2022. wow um and on the the writing side uh, mm -hmm. and, your, and your friends and your writing friends saying yeah. they found it so healing which i did as well mm -hmm. when i read it too um i think what's so smart about the, your writing always but particularly in wish you were here is that you validate how everybody's feeling so that mm -hmm. thing especially with the pandemic i think is that you're i think most of us are pretty aware that there's somebody somewhere who's having it way worse than any of us yes were mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. we're still feeling really bad and really struggling right. with our mental health about how to right. get through that and knowing mm -hmm. that we're entitled and privileged in so many ways um yeah to get that sort of sense across was that quite mm -hmm. difficult to get the balance right in the writing here it was for me it was like i wanted people to walk away with three main points from this book and it's funny because you know of course because it's tied up in the pandemic people are referring to it as a COVID book. I actually don't think of it as a COVID book. I think of it as a book about human resilience set against the backdrop of the pandemic. Yeah, um, and you it's know, about so love it, as well. It is very much, and it's about, um, it, it's about what happens when the universe laughs at our plans, really, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and learning who you really are in that moment when you, when you press pause. I wanted people to come away with three things. And the first one, speaking to what you just said is, it's okay that we all lost something and it's okay to grieve. And I think that we, you know, you tell me what age you were, I can tell you what you lost. It might've been in-person schooling. It could have been a graduation. It could have been a prom. It could have been a vacation. It could have been um, a wedding. It could have been a loved one. It could have been a job. In my case, it was a musical I've been working on for eight years that was supposed to debut off Broadway that did not happen because Broadway shut down. And that was devastating. And, you know, I, I think that we like to play the blame game. Oh, someone had it worse than I did. Oh, you know, losing a person is not the same as not going to prom, but the loss feels the same for all of us. We all have that emptiness and that sense that we didn't get what was coming to us. And it's okay to not play the game of who had it worse and to just accept that we all lost something. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want people to take away is what did you learn when you were stuck with yourself for 15 months and everything changed. And one of the things I learned was that I am an utter control freak. Like I knew that, but I didn't realize how bad and how in particular, how bad it is for me when I can't, I can't fix something. When something goes wrong, I'm the kind of person who's like, all right, well, let's put our heads together. How do we do this? How do we change this? Let's look at it from a different angle. There was no other angle. I couldn't fix this. And that overwhelmed me and really, left me feeling unseemed, a little unseemed. And so I, I began to realize that the things that I would have measured success by changed completely in 2020. If you had asked me what was success, I would have said, you know, uh, a promotion, getting a degree, 
um, uh, you know, um, having uh, work recognized by your peers, being the, at the top of a bestseller list, having that Broadway show, those were the marks of success for me. Well, you know, in 2020, success became, am I healthy? Are the people I love healthy? Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have enough food? Can I hold the hand of someone I love who's dying? I mean, who knew that was going to be a privilege, right? And all of a sudden, I think we, we've rejiggered what it means to have a good life because of 2020. So then that brings me to the third point that I want people to take away, <laughs> which is really, you know, the world's changed. It's not going back. It's not going to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic. But we also have evolved a little bit. So how do we take everything that we learned during that moment where the universe pressed pause for us and carry it into the future now that we're just starting to come back again? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, obviously, so much of what you say there, but the particular the second point about success. So I hesitate to call myself a writer in your presence. <laughs> I'm writing my second book at the moment. Amazing. I, <laughs> I've written my first one terrifyingly and excitingly um, I've been doing edits with my literary agent for the past two years and it's just gone out on submission to editors yesterday congratulations that's so, amazing yeah but I'm also aware that it's still a waiting <laughs> game and it could be weeks mm -hmm. and months before you hear anything and there's just mm -hmm. as likely to be rejections in that you know it's finding that one editor right who's gonna sure. help you yes and carry who through. loves you but my second book is uh the themes of that whilst it's set in the music industry it's about mm -hmm. success and how mm -hmm. success is actually should be, I believe, uh, personal to every individual. Yes. Um, uh -huh. And your success isn't going to look like my success. And 100%. I, sh I shouldn't weigh myself up against the commercials or monetary success or mm -hmm. societal success that I see in other people. Yeah. And I think that that sort of was hammered home with a very devastating clarity during lockdown. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. You know, all of it. What was so interesting to me about the pandemic is that everyone felt isolated, everyone felt alone, but we were all experiencing the exact same thing. That is a really interesting, you know, conundrum and paradox. Yeah. Um, and that, that sense of isolation was so fun to write about because, you know, I, ironically, when I've never been to Machu Picchu and I had been to the Galapagos, it didn't take me long to think, oh, right, Galapagos, Darwin. You know, isolation in the Galapagos is very scientifically important. It's, it's why the theory of natural selection and evolution developed. And the whole idea behind Darwin's theory is that when a species is put under great stress, they either die out or they adapt. And if that is not a metaphor for 2020, I mean, what is, right? Yeah, yeah, you have that great quote at the beginning, the Darwin quote yeah. about being adaptable to change. That's how you survive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well now feels like a, a good point to, to hear some if that's okay um if you of can course. read a little bit for us from wish you were here i'm actually reading from the very very beginning and it starts with a flashback um Diana, in diana's voice march 13th 2020 when i was six years old i painted a corner of the sky my father was working as a conservator one of a handful restoring the zodiac ceiling on the main hall of grand central terminal an aqua sky strung with shimmering constellations it was late, way past my bedtime, but my father took me to work because my mother, as usual, was not home. He helped me carefully climb the scaffolding where I watched him working on a cleaned patch of the turquoise paint. I looked at the stars representing the smear of the Milky Way, the golden wings of Pegasus, Orion's raised club, the twisted fish of Pisces. The original mural had been painted in 1913, my father told me, 
Roof leaks damaged the plaster, and in 1944, it had been replicated on panels that were attached to the arch ceiling. The original plan had been to remove the boards for restoration, but they contained asbestos, and so the conservators left them in place and went to work with cotton swabs and cleaning solution, erasing decades of pollutants. They uncovered history. Signatures and inside jokes and notes left behind by the original artists were revealed, tucked in among constellations. There were dates commemorating weddings and the end of World War II. There were names of soldiers. The birth of twins was recorded near Gemini. An error had been made by the original artist so that the painted zodiac was reversed from the way it would appear in the night sky. Instead of correcting it though, my father was diligently reinforcing the error. That night he was working on a small square of space, gilding stars. He'd already painted over the tiny yellow dots with adhesive. He covered these with a piece of gold leaf, light as breath. Then he turned to me. Diana, he said, holding out his hand. And I climbed up in front of him, caged by the safety of his body. He handed me a brush to sweep over the foil, fixing it in place. He showed me how to gently rub it with my thumb so that the galaxy he created was all that remained. When all the work was finished, the conservators kept a small dark spot in the northwest corner of Grand Central Terminal, where the pale blue ceiling meets the marble wall. This nine by five inch section was left that way intentionally. My father told me that conservators do that in case historians need to study the original composition. The only way you can tell how far you've come is to know where you started. Every time I'm in Grand Central Tem Terminal, I think about my father, of how we left that night hand in hand, our palms glittering like we had stolen the stars. <laughs> I'm smiling and I've got goosebumps hearing you read that because <laughs> I finished Wish You Were Here a few weeks ago now um, and uh, only a couple of weeks ago, but I haven't gone back and reread it fully mm -hmm. yet. And I now dipped in and out <laughs> and just hearing that opening passage again, yet again, you've done that uh, mm -hmm. incredibly complex thing which I know all the great authors do of laying out everything that's to come mm -hmm. in those opening yeah. paragraphs. Right. Yeah. And you wouldn't know it, but you know, it's all in there. It totally it's all in, in there. there. Yep. yep. It's absolutely yep. in there. So smart. Um, do you, on a writerly note, do you, did you write that at the end or near the beginning? Whenever I write a book, I don't let myself start writing until I have the perfect first line. And this actually came with, during one of those hikes. I was doing an eight mile hike. I was with friends, we were talking. And I honestly don't remember what we were talking about, but clearly I wasn't focusing on the conversation <laughs> because I was thinking about this image of Grand Central Station and the Zodiac and, and that first line, you know, it just, it suddenly just hit me. When I was six years old, I painted a corner of the sky. And I, I just suddenly stopped in my tracks and everyone looked at me and they were like, what are you doing? And I said, I think I, think I know how to start my book. Um, <laughs> so it just sort of landed. And, and I do think it was, I don't remember what we were talking about. I think we were talking about stars or something. So obviously whatever mm. my friends were talking about helped me. But um, that once I, I hit on that and I knew that her dad was going to be uh, a conservator of art and um, an art as, as a family, art kind of runs through the O'Toole's. Uh, her father replica replicates art, um, even the errors, as you can see. Uh, her mother is a very famous photographer who is world-renowned and who's won you know, Pulitzers and you name it, and um, really created art. And because she doesn't want to be like her mother, Diana very specifically decides not to become an artist and instead to broker art, which is what she's doing at Sotheby's. Um, you know, and art itself is such a, it's a metaphor in the book and it's such an important one because Diana 
works in this, uh, the imp mod section, which is impressionist and modern uh, art. And she is focused on the impressionists. And of course, you know, anyone who's ever seen a Monet um, or Renoir, if you walk really close, you know, up until you're staring right at the, at five inches away from a painting that's an impressionist painting, it looks like a blur, you can't see anything. You need to step back and have perspective. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm looking at a cathedral. Oh, I'm looking at water lilies. Um, you need that distance to get perspective. And that metaphorically is what this entire book is about. <laughs> I'm seriously, I'm like, it's so freaking smart. It's, oh, thank yeah, it's you. great, it's really good. Um, but that, so that image that was sort of seared in your brain of the ceiling at Grand Central Station, is that just because you, you passed through that multiple times? Absolutely. I mean, I know a lot of writers who've written about it before. And um, for me in particular, I was thinking about things in New York that have recently had major art restorations. That was one of them. There's uh, also the ceiling of the New York Public Library. There's a, the Rose Room ceiling um, was a big conservator uh, push. So I, I was thinking about the things in the city that Diana would have grown up um, seeing her father do, basically. And where, are, if you don't mind me asking, where do you live? Where are you based? Oh, now? I live in New Hampshire. I do not live in New York City. <laughs> I live in the country. <laughs> and right now it's snowing. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, we haven't quite had that yet. Just to kind of try and, obviously I'm not expecting you to say, how do you do it? But the, the thing that I've always enjoyed about your writing um, and it's clear to see in that passage you just read is how you build up those layers to mm -hmm. such an extent. So the characters are so well-defined um, and I'm not saying this just to be sycophantic at all. I'm, I'm, this is genuine what I get as a reader. Um, Thank you. And, ho and hopefully by writing myself and trying to learn how to do some of this as well is that there's a point in each of your books. There are multiple points that kind of make me gasp and make me do different things, but there's always like a, <laughs> a key point where mm -hmm. it feels like everything's been building to a crescendo and then it suddenly bursts, um, yeah. which I had in this book. And I had um, <laughs> in the book of two ways, uh, the one before this as well, especially where, and, and I couldn't even see it coming as a reader. It's like, obviously it's all been layered and it's all there in the writing, but then mm -hmm. it just builds to this point. So the technique of doing that, is it, does it just kind of happen as you're writing it along? Do you go back and stuff things in along the way? This book I wrote so fast. I wrote this first draft in two months, which is really fast. Uh, even for me, I write quickly, but this was insane. It, it just kind of poured out. And um, I, I knew there's a twist in this book that I actually think is the best twist I've ever written. And uh, I, I, nobody has guessed it, so don't feel bad. But, <laughs> but I, I didn't know what was gonna happen after that. I really, I, I'm a plotter and I really had no idea where this book was going. So I felt like I was writing into the darkness, which for me is very strange. And I was, I had these writer friends of mine who were reading it and giving me feedback and notes. And based on what they said, I would, you know, sort of, it was almost like this whip stitch. I kept going back and revising and adding and layering. And um, one of the threads in this, this book is about Diana and her mother. Yeah. And I really, that, that was not, that did not rise in my head as a, like cream, you know, to the surface as a, a major thread until um, really until I was maybe two thirds of the way writing the book. And then I had to kind of go back and seed it so that I could continue towards where I needed to get. And on a writing point as well, 
do you do you enjoy that part of writing the continual rewriting and editing and fixing things or do you like the kind of first draft blur I way prefer the first draft <laughs> me too there's nothing I hate more than getting an editor's letter which is like that's when your editor is like oh my god I loved it it was so great I we're so excited to publish this and then you get a letter and it's like 40 pages long with everything that you gotta fix and I'm like but I thought you loved it you know yeah so um that's very hard but I think yeah. it's probably reassuring as well though for people to hear that that still happens to you <laughs> yeah totally totally um yeah and it's yeah it's so funny when i told her i wrote this other manuscript with jenny boylan and our editor had given us notes on it before i i was even done with this book and <laughs> i swear she she had no idea how jenny and i split the writing duties but i swear all of her edits were for me and not jenny and i was like <laughs> yeah are you kidding me really <laughs> yeah and i assume that you're fine with getting editorial feedback now but does it oh, still i love it <laughs> I love it. No, because you know what? Genuinely. I think you, yeah, you think that you, first of all, you have to have an editor that you really trust. Mm -hmm. I have the world's most amazing editor. Uh, I work with Jennifer Hershey. I've worked with her since I came to Random House, and she is a spectacular editor. Um, and she makes all of my books better than they are originally, which is all you want as a writer. And I trust her. That's the other really important thing. And the third important thing is that if I feel very strongly about something that she wants to change or fix, and I can give her a reason for it, then I get to keep it. You know, I, ultimately I'm the bottom line. And if I can't defend something, she's probably right. You know, so I've had multiple cases where, you know, I, she wanted to change something and I was like, no, you're absolutely wrong and here's why. And I got to keep it. Um, a good example of that is uh, in the narrative for uh, Spark of Light, there are like, I think there are like eight or nine narrative threads that you're following because there are characters and you're sort of, you're working backwards in time and you're following each of these characters journeys in time and it jumps every chapter jumps back one hour and there were originally 16 narrative threads that you were following and she was like no we're cutting half of them and she wanted me to cut uh one of them uh, it was olive and olive is this older woman who's at this abortion clinic during a shooting not because she's having an abortion obviously but because she's there for cancer screening and i was I was like no 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 she's the heart of the book and we're not cutting this and and after we finished the whole edit Jen wrote me and she was like you were right Aww. you know so so there's that partnership I think between an editor and, and a, an author and you have to have that partnership yeah and another partnership is one that must come with your family and life outside of writing um, and <laughs> how good or bad are you um they may not be the right words to use at, at that yeah. balance in terms of when a when a book is forming in your head or you mm -hmm. know if you're deep in a project um, right are you accessible to other people so i i really do treat writing like a job i mean i had to because when i was when i started off writing um I had three kids under the age of four and I was the primary caretaker. And I used to like throw them at my, my husband at six o'clock when he got home from work. And then I would write, you know, at night or I would write during uh, nursery school pickup. I'd bring my laptop and I would have it in the car. I'd write at swim practice, you know, you name it. I was like taking 15 minutes here or there. And when organized school happened, it was like a miracle because I had eight hours a day to work. And that was how I began to pattern my life as a writer. Now my kids are all moved out. They're, you know, they're much older. And um, I still write five days a week, eight hours a day. And then I magically go downstairs and I, you know, become a wife or a mom again, and make, make dinner or watch TV or whatever. 
Um, so I have pretty strong boundaries about like when, when I'm momming and, or, or being a partner and when I'm upstairs writing in my office and my husband's so supportive. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the career I have if not for him. Cause at some point he decided to be the stay at home dad so that I could kind of expand on my writing. And that was life-changing for, you know, all of us, but, um, that, I mean, that's a I great think, point too, because, um, I, we spoke to Taylor Jenkins yeah. Reed on this podcast too. And she said the exact yeah. same thing. You've got to kind of shout yeah. out the men who actually support and the yeah. dads who carry that as well. Right. But you also, when you interview a male author, have to shout out the women who made their yeah. authorship possible because that rarely happens. Yeah. I mean, I, there's nothing I hate more than like, how did you do it as a mom and a writer? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I always all. say, right. And I always go, did you ask that of the last guy that you had on? You know, because mm -hmm. that there is an absolute gender bias in publishing. And um, and anyway, I, you know, thank God for my husband because he's incredible and he made it possible for me to do it, what I like to do. But that said, if I'm like at the very end of a manuscript, it feels like there's this monkey on my back pulling my hair and I will stay up for, you know, 48 hours straight to get it out, to finish it. Yeah, because I, I, I sort of was asking the thread of that conversation because similarly, I'll be chatting to my husband sometimes or the kids will be mm -hmm. around. And they're like, you're not listening, are you? And I'm like, no, I yes. am. But I know yeah. that I'm not because actually my head's yeah, like whirring. Like <laughs> yeah, I do it all the time. It's really hard being a writer because your office is between your ears. Yeah. You know? And when I was, when the kids were really, really little, this was before we had, okay, I'm old, but this is before we had phones, cell phones. And I used to, I, I would lose pieces of paper if I wanted to, if I was driving and I had an idea, you know, and I would lose pieces of paper. So I would write on my hands. And if I ran out of space, I wrote on my kids because I never lost them, you know, and we'd come home and then I would transcribe whatever I'd written on them and, you know, say, oh, right. I have to add that to chapter three. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about the adaptations of some of your books and how you found that? We process? can. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, my big adaptation was of My Sister's Keeper and it was a disaster. Um, when they, oh, it was terrible. When they were hiring Nick Cassavetes to be the writer and director, they asked me to talk to him. And I said, honestly, do anything you want with this property, but don't change the ending. The ending is what sold millions of copies of this book. And he read it and he said, I'm not gonna change it. If anyone does, I'm gonna tell you why and I'm gonna tell you myself. And I thought that's about as fair as we could get. So um, I wound up having meetings with the guy weekly. He would ask for my feedback and I read drafts of it and it looked like the book. And then, then he sent it off for casting and I got an email from a fan who worked at a casting agency. And she said, did you know they changed the ending of My Sister's Keeper? So I called Nick at home and he wouldn't take my call. And I flew to the set and he threw me off the set. And I went to... Um, the uh, office of the executive at New Line Cinema. And I said, you're gonna make a colossal mistake here because my fans will not accept this. They won't go see the movie. And he said, oh, we trust Nick. You know, he made the notebook for us, which really is not way to influence me and make <laughs> me feel better. And so um, sure enough, I was right. And my fans boycotted the movie and it was, it was a, a beautiful movie about dying with dignity. Just isn't what my book is about. And, um, you know, I, I basically had a gag order until the movie came out and I have been very vocal saying this was a disastrous experience and I hated it. And ironically, because I was able to tell Hollywood they were gonna lose money, everyone thought I was psychic. And so every deal I had after that, 
involved me much more in a creative level than that first one. And um, I have had lots of things that have, have sold since then. Small Great Things is still in development after several years. Um, I recently was speaking to the writer of that uh, screenplay. Um, Wish You Were Here sold and, and you know, hasn't officially yeah. been published yet, which is really exciting. And I'm thrilled about it. Uh, two female executives, two very high powered women, mm. both wanted the property and said, let's do it together. And they took it to an executive at Netflix, another woman who was like, oh my God, yes. And so it's been smooth and lovely. And, and I just have to believe all these really intelligent female brains are going to make a beautiful adaptation. Yeah, I guess it's, hold on one second. My daughter's just popped in through. Are you okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's just back from school. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you it's hard you don't want to sort of necessarily gender the experience of working with people but why should it be that your voice isn't on an equal footing as mm -hmm. the male auteur who's taken your ideas um yeah yep uh yeah yeah I'm going to be writing about that soon so <laughs> yeah yeah because there is gender discrimination in publishing I've been very vocal about it um, I got a lot of heat for saying it about a Franzen book, um, and it's happened over and over again. We see it constantly. Uh, in America, there is a group that actually um, tracks the number of reviews of female written books, um, the number of female reviewers, and they've expanded it to include women of color and uh, non-binary people and uh, trans women. And, you know, the numbers are shockingly small, the more... Uh, the more that they focus on their um, underrepresented groups. But gender discrimination constantly happens in publishing, constantly. Happens a lot for me in the UK. There are many people who have never read a book of mine who say, oh, she writes chiclet. Well, let me tell you, I mean, if I write chiclet, I write really bad chiclet because it's supposed to be like light and fluffy. And I don't think my books function that way. I love chiclet. I love all kinds of different genres, but when you say a woman writes women's fiction or chiclet, what you really mean is that author has a vagina. <laughs> and to be fair, nobody says that about men. Yeah. Why is it that women are supposed to read both men and women, but men don't tend to read female authors? Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, Dickens is one of my favorite authors and I, I read for the first time actually properly as a grown up, mm -hmm. as opposed to a, at school, A Tale of Two Cities last year. Mm -hmm. And in many it's ways- It's a romance can... <laughs> novel. Isn't it? It's a romance <laughs> novel. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, yeah. Exactly. There are a <laughs> lot of men who write that, uh, you know, who write family drama or who write romance novels, but we would never call them that because they're men. Yeah, so, I should say yeah. at this point as well that um, so this podcast is hosted by myself and my friend Phil, who is a man. Yes, he couldn't be here today because he yes. has a childcare issue, which right, again no. is <laughs> worth <laughs> worth flagging. But one of the kind of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk about books that we cover and that we enjoy is that I'm often saying to him, "Can you just say you really enjoyed this book?" Because I yes. think it's important for you to say, yes. as a man, it's it should be for me too. Yeah. It's not just for totally. women. Right, totally. I mean, I've, I've been called a women's author so often. And yeah, I have a lot of women who write my books, but I was so tired of being called a women's author that I tracked my email for three months. And 49% of my fan mail comes from men. So, and all of them start off by saying, I'm sure I'm your only male reader, you know? And that's kind of sad. That that's apology. Really sad. Yeah. yeah, it is really sad. And also it's something, I mean, 
obviously there are different layers to these things, but I think it's it's often leveled at books that aren't deemed to be literary fiction either. So there's a snobbery. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) Just because you're popular doesn't mean that you're any lesser, um, which has been my bugbear my entire career as well, because I've kind of covered popular culture um, as a journalist. And, you know, I would constantly be frustrated at how um, so-called the arts would just like Mm -hmm. get blanket coverage with no criticism Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Whereas popular culture wouldn't get even sort of the airtime because it wasn't it was mainstream and I don't understand what that means it just means that more people are absorbing it so shouldn't you contextualize it and and offer some more anyway yeah yeah no I agree with you I mean there's there's it's absolutely true that there are things on bestseller lists that are not well written but there's also stuff that wins prizes that I don't find particularly well written that just has that literary stamp and so mostly literary and commercial is a marketing decision that's what makes a book literary or commercial and I could give you examples of both that had they been marketed with a different cover would have sold very differently. You know, um, to me, that is a fascinating distinction and a completely arbitrary one for the most part. Yeah, no, I, mm-hmm. obviously you're right. Yeah. So on, on the covers, how involved do you get or have you had to have been over the years and have you tried to, to shift the marketing narrative of your writing through mm-hmm. the covers? You know, it's funny. Um, So I don't, different countries have different covers and that makes total sense because what someone will pick up in New York is very different from what someone will pick up in London. And um, I completely trust my foreign publishers to know their market and to know what a book needs to look like. I always have, um, particularly with my main markets and England is one of them, I definitely have, uh, I guess, like a veto power, you know, like they'll Mm -hmm. say, this is the direction we're thinking of going. What do you think? And I can say, oh, I think you're really wrong. Or I can say, well, that's really cool. What if we did this? Um, wish you were here. You can kind of see the American cover behind me. Yeah. And it, to me, I, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, I don't know. That looks to me like, I thought it was a very highly literary look, you know? And um, so just to describe like, it, it's got like a, what's the type it, of bird? It's a bird. It? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, well, I don't know what type of bird. Maybe it is. it's I like a actually. Bird. Right. I think it's actually um, a mockingbird and not a finch because uh, as we know from the book, Darwin actually mislabeled all the finches. So uh, he did not base his theory of natural selection on the finches as we've all been taught incorrectly our whole life. But it's this um, kind of a dark blue field with this bright bird on it, this kind of sparkly rock. And it was a just, I I love the look of it. I just thought it was really pretty and eye-catching. So I was like, okay, let's try this. Um, But to me, it's a more literary cover than some of my other ones have been. And We'll see. I, I hope people enjoy it. I think it's a yeah. beautiful cover here. And I've got the uh, the UK yeah the version UK here. version's beautiful too. I love that mm. too. I think it's a really cool, you know, very. Um, it's much more conceptual, I think, but it's really soothing and and beautiful. Yeah, and the colors as well. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had a realization because I really love cookbooks as well, and I often read cookbooks because I really like the cultural stories about where recipes come from and I had to look at my cookbook shelves the other day and like why are there so many pink like why well, I don't that? know I, wow yeah, I, just in that I've never categorized my cookbooks by color well so. I haven't uh, no mine mine are not categorized yeah. in whatever recipe I need to find but I just suddenly looked I'm like oh like that's a lot of pink on that's that weird shelf. yeah so obviously we could talk about things like this for hours and we don't have hours um but how do you, what was the kind of train of thought I wanted to go back to? 
it was when you were talking about the kind of popular culture side of things. Yeah. Is it worth your energy trying to change that? Or is that just a distraction? And do you just get on with what you do? So um, I don't know that one person can change things. What I do know is that if you are fortunate enough to have a podium and people waiting for you to speak, you should think very hard about what it is that you say when you step up to it. I, you know, I like to think I'm so old at this point, I've just <laughs> stopped giving any Fs, but part of it is that. And part of it is like, people do seem to listen to things I say, readers do, and they trust me in some cases. Like this is a hard, a hard book at looking at a hard time. And that knowing that I have readers who are gonna trust me to get them safely through it means a lot to me. So for that reason, when I choose to say something, I talk very vehemently and very openly about gender discrimination. I have talked about vaccination in my country. I've talked about a lot of things that are um, important to me that I think deserve public airing. And I get a lot of flack, a lot of flack. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'm doing an in-person book tour in America. I pushed for it because I think it's almost the companion piece to wish you were here. As we move out of a pandemic into an endemic, this is going nowhere. So we have to learn how to live with this and how to yeah. do it in a safe way. And I said, I would like to do a small tour. I would like uh, to know that everybody in the venue has shown proof of vaccination and is masked. That is how I feel safe with my lungs doing an event. And I felt really good about it. We've had great response to it. Um, and you know, I, I was very clear in why I required proof of vaccination. And I got a bunch of readers who wrote me emails telling me that I have bought into the Nazi regime because I'm making people show their papers and that don't even get me started on that one. Yeah, I've, <laughs> you know, I've, and, I've, I haven't seen yeah. that narrative in the UK yet, I say, um, but I've yeah. seen something in the States where there's that likening between yeah, the Nazi regime. Yeah, people showing up at town, yeah. With people showing stars. up in town meetings with a star on, come on. I mean, that is, it is, it is not only egregious, it is an embarrassment and it is incredibly um, insensitive. So insensitive to make that comparison. And, uh, you know, I, I write everybody back who writes to me and I write all of these people back and explain very clearly, if you are making the choice to not be vaccinated, why does that val invalidate my choice to run an event with myself in a way that keeps me healthy why is your choice more important than mine and then do people come back to you as well do you oh keep... sometimes yeah sometimes but you know it's like I may not change everyone's mind but I am going to I'm going to be firm in my beliefs and I am going to back up my beliefs and I am going to try to challenge people to think outside their box and by speaking up and not being silent which um not be the best thing to do obviously in many situations anyway mm -hmm. has that uh given you the label of being difficult ever by people in publishing or I don't think so I mean I, I have to say, say I mean I'm not saying that yeah, I, no, that I don't think so I, sometimes I feel bad for my publicist they're probably like oh god she's at it again um <laughs> but I I would also like to think that perhaps the point of view I choose to espouse is the progressive one and say not an anti-trans sentiment, mm -hmm. like some authors have been flagged for, um, you know, or, or something like that, an anti-vax 
uh, you know, position. I'm not standing up for those things. And I think if you are trying very hard to move a wall so that the world moves forward, maybe you are reflected on more positively. Um, I, I actually don't think I have a reputation for being difficult at all. I have a reputation for working very quickly, being very professional, giving a thousand percent and being very helpful to other authors who need a leg up, which is at this point in my career, something I'm really proud of because I try for that very hard. But um, what I was just I more, do kind think, of more wondering that is that, is yeah. it that in terms of the gender discrimination that, yeah, I haven't heard that about you at all. Not that yeah. I'm as, as constantly yeah. no, talking about are. me. Yeah, I, I mean, people know that I talk about that all the time because that's like one of my, you know, my pet peeves. And I'm happy to talk about it because I think I think people need to. Yeah, um, well, I think it's just that, that way, yeah, it's that thing yeah. that people, you're just uh, yeah. speaking what's about what's important to you. It's not being yes. difficult. Whereas if a man had said what's important to him, he would be bold and brave and whatever. Oh, totally. You're exactly right. Yeah, it, it's I am I'm being a harpy. I'm being a shrew. I'm mm. being, you know, um, in fact, there was an author who I won't name who threw me under the bus uh, in an interview. I never met the guy. And I actually am a huge fan of his work, but he was asked about gender discrimination in publishing and whether or not it existed. And he, um, he is a literary author. And he said, yeah, I don't really understand what Jody Pico is bellyaching about. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, first of all, he name checked me out of nowhere. Second of all, bellyaching is you know definitely a pejorative term, yeah. not, for example, airing her point of view. Um, what I do see, so I don't really see that in the public eye. People just think of me as someone who is willing to speak her mind. I do sometimes though, because I am forthright, I will very happily take any fan who says to me, oh, okay, you're pushing your vaccine status. You want people to get vaccinated. Well, I'm never buying your books again. To which I say, good riddance and goodbye. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, there are a lot of authors who I don't think speak their mind because they're afraid of losing sales. And I think that is a terrible way to go through life. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that thing by being silent, you compromise more than you think you might by mm -hmm. not speaking up exactly and maybe if I can get someone to change their mind then I think that's great that is absolutely what I try to do with my books I will always show you all sides of the situation but ultimately the decision on where you fall and it, a difficult topic is up to you and um I model my life the way I model my writing yeah um so just last few things because I'm aware that time is tight um yeah. the book that you're writing next is that the one yes. that's going to address some of these things and the... no that's 2024 <laughs> no the book oh that God. is coming out I know I'm so far ahead right now it's kind of weird um the book that's coming out next is called Mad Honey and it's co-written with Jenny Boylan and it is a phenomenal book I cannot wait for the world to see that one I'm so really this is the one that was that. kind of written yeah, yeah. before wish you were here yeah <laughs> yeah <Okay>. yep <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know that publishing moves slowly, but your brain obviously moves super <laughs> fast as well, which is great. But also, the, so the one that's going to come out in 2024 that's going to address some of this gender mm -hmm. imbalance. Gender discrimination, yeah. Can that, um, have you only been able to write that with a degree of distance from when it really kind of smacked you in the face? And I say that from someone who, I only had a recent realization that in one of my, mm -hmm. not even that early journalism jobs, I'd always get frustrated because I'd bring up ideas in meetings and mm. like it nothing would ever happen I'd be like oh that's not a good idea and then two weeks later someone else usually a man would say my yep. idea and then it would make what it a to phenomenal air. idea <laughs> and Amazing. I'm sitting there going yeah. I'm pretty sure I said that like two weeks ago and <laughs> yeah, I just I'm kind sure of kept happening too. and of course being female I took that all on myself I was like oh, I must 
maybe I didn't say that or maybe I just said it badly and maybe I need to right. get better right I, I don't think I did yeah. I think I was just not being heard yeah yeah you know I I I'm not surprised to hear that at all and it's not just in publishing it's in many different uh you know fields of business, I think, where that happens. Um, I don't necessarily think I needed a certain level of perspective in mm -hmm. order to write this book because it's endemic. It's, it's happening everywhere and it's still happening. <laughs> uh, what I needed was the right story. And I found the right story. I cannot wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to write it. I'm still doing the research, but yeah. And just so people get a sense of how quickly you write. So two months was quick for you to write a book. What's your usual yes. time frame? To About write nine a book? months about nine months nine months and yeah. does that include the editing as well or no okay that's just to the first draft so that's research and writing and do you still yeah. write anywhere or is it at that desk where I'm talking to you now this is the best place for me to write because what you can't see <laughs> is the mess in front of me and to the left are is all my research so I have all these stacks of books and research for you know multiple book projects that are going on and um you know I, I can write anywhere but I prefer to write where I have access to everything that I need. Do you listen to anything when you're writing as well? Never, kryptonite, kryptonite. <laughs> I love music, I love music, but I cannot I cannot write when music is playing because it. Um, I start like, I start trying to finish lyrics in my head and I get really distracted. I know all these authors have playlists and stuff and I never do that because I it, it completely hobbles me. And just briefly on, on your musical, which it yes. has. <laughs> Yes. How yes. how was that? Um, I'm a huge fan of musicals. I'm going to be watching Tick Tick Boom this weekend. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so actually, I'm glad I can plug this. So I I have to say that we, after a tremendous heartbreak of not being able to launch Between the Lines um, in April of 2020, we are launching it at the same theater it was going to be at. It'll happen in America in June of 2020, but. Uh, the same creative team um, and my co-libretto writer, we have uh, adapted Marcus Zusak's The Book Thief, which will be making its world premiere in Bolton um, in September of 2022. So at the Octagon Theater outside of Manchester. Wow. Uh, and it, it is so good. So I am so, so excited about bringing that to the UK. So I will be spending quite a lot of time over in your neck of the woods. Amazing. Well, we launched that. Mm -hmm. So have you been doing, so, so that's a musical as well, you said? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you've been, we adapted you been doing as lyrics as well as writing the book, the story? No, no. So uh, my co-writer and I are the, uh, we write the libretto. So we write all of the, all the dialogue basically. And we have an incredible uh, songwriting team that worked with us on Between the Lines. They were hired by Disney on the strength of their music from Between the Lines. So we must have picked well. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so they are, uh, we, we loved working together. We just became a family and we were like, oh, what's, what would you love to adapt if you could adapt any book in the world? And we, like all four of us said The Book Thief. And I was like, well, I happen to know the author. Let's try. And Marcus was great and was really into it. And um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's so different from our first show, which mm -hmm. is very, uh, you know, there, there are serious elements to it, but it's a light show. It, it feels um, empowering and light and fluffy and funny. There's lots of humor in, uh, in between the lines. There's, it's, <laughs> it's harder to find the humor in the book <laughs> because, you know, it's about a really terrible time in history, but there are, there is, there is beautiful light touches throughout it, you know, there that um, it, it's just, it feels much more epic to me. I guess that's the best way to put it in the 
the vein of the Les Mis and the Phantom musicals that are so sweeping and in, intense and important. And uh, I, I honestly just cannot wait for audiences to see it because I think it's going to blow them away. I cannot wait to see it and hear it as well because I know that with your writing as well and with that story, you're going to yeah. have those crescendos, right? Where you're going to take us to places and drop us. You have no idea. Yeah, no, you have no idea. It is so... It is so deeply moving, this show. It is so incredibly deeply moving. I was, uh, it's funny because I, I remember, I remember that I had given a draft of the libretto to my son to read on a plane and he read it on the way home and was hysterical crying and was like, why, why did you give this to me on public transport? Why did you think this was a good thing to do? And it, it, it is, it's, it, but it's also ultimately such an, um, a moving and empowering story because it is about why is the human race worth saving? And honestly, post 2020 to come back to that question mm -hmm. in a musical was very resonant and very rich. And there are reasons that, that humankind is worth saving, but what happens when humankind loses its kindness? That's ultimately the focus of the book. Mm -hmm. Leaning into so come the see kind. it. Yeah, I will come see do. it. September 2022. <laughs> it sounds Off immense. Theater, Bolton. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> the first time we managed to travel since everything was we went to Paris for half term and took the kids. Nice. And um, we were coming back on the Eurostar. And my the two things I had on the Eurostar was we were me and my husband were watching Les Mis because we're just yes. been in Paris, so we were watching. Sure. That. Why not? Um, yeah. And uh, my kids just have to see me go one day more and they know that I'm probably about to cry. Um, and right. then I was reading Wish You Were Here as well. Um, and I reached <laughs> that bit and I was like, ah! and my son, he's wow. like, what are you doing? What happened, mommy? Yeah, that is a one-two punch for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was. So just to wrap things up, Jodi, um, you have so many good recommendations and I know that you're so supportive of other authors on social mm -hmm. media, which is beautiful to see. What have you read lately that you love that you'd like to share here? So I read a terrific book, which I believe was just published in the UK. It's called We Are Not Like Them. It's by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. And um, it's a book about race relations between a black woman and a white woman who are good friends and for whom um, racial tension sort of begins to, to split them apart a little bit. I also got to, the, I had the privilege of reading uh, an advanced copy of one Night on the Island by Josie Silver, who I love. She's a terrific uh, British author. And I think that's coming out next year. And um, the other book that I would recommend, one of the things I've been reading a lot of is fantasy and YA fantasy. I think because I need a dystopian world worse than the one I'm living in. And um, <laughs> I read Once Upon a Broken Heart by Steph Stephanie Garber, who wrote the Caravel series. And it was beautifully dreamy and gorgeously written. So I recommend those three. Fantastic. Thank you. I will pass. My daughter's just 10, 13. So maybe I'll pass that recommendation on to her. Mm, well. She'll love it. Yeah, yeah, she'll love it. Thank you for your writing. We didn't have time to cover everything, obviously, but <laughs> I love that you write Wonder Woman comics as well. And you can just turn your hand to so many different things. And thank yeah, you. Cannot wait to see the book thief. On thank stage. you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, can't, I really do hope you go. It's really, really good. And best of luck with your books. Thank you. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Take you care. too. Thanks. Bye. So that was me trying not to gush too much to Jodie Pico. And as you heard right at the end there, I did want to chat to her about how she writes and has done for quite a long time for Wonder Woman comics as well. And, you know, she just has this breadth of knowledge and interest and curiosity about the world that, um, yeah, it's fascinating. So I hope you enjoyed it. Very, very good. And really interesting as well. And it drives me mad, the whole women's fiction thing. It really mm. drives me mad because 
as you'll hear when we do our books of the year, one of my books of the year this year is one that definitely would fall under that label. And yet I'm a bloke and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> really, really. Interesting. I just think it's damaged. I think it just puts people off. I think you've got to be attracted to as many books as possible. And you've got to widen the net and then you're not going to love everything. What you don't love, you just cast aside and then crack on to find one that you do love. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? How we put so many different labels on books and I, and I get that it's a way to sell books and to market them to people but you know I flit around genres of books just as much as I do genres of tv and mm. film like it's mm. really hot you wouldn't say oh yeah I only watch true crime or if you did that oof, that'd be a dark place to live in the whole time right you've got to <laughs> do have a bit of a sitcom in there or you know that film we all need a blanky to... blank moment don't we <laughs> oh, I'm really enjoying the new series <laughs> me too <laughs> it's fun right yeah. yeah doesn't it just show that Bradley Walsh could do anything yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You can make anything good. Yeah, but also, um, obviously, this is going off on a tangent. So my youngest is now eight, and it's that kind of like Saturday night telly stuff. He loves it if we happen to be in and blankety blank now comes on. He's like, oh, this is really fun because it's really easy to get. And yeah, he just goes with it. So our kids, as you know, are younger than yours, five and two. They mm. love catchphrase for the same reason. Mm, yeah, yeah. Part of that is the bright lights and the kind of digital screen on it. But they do, the five-year-old now will definitely start having a guess at what the catchphrases might be. <laughs> <laughs> which is really quite cool as he shouts out random nonsense yeah he, he, he takes that say what you see literally yes <laughs> this is a really bad analogy now do you think like women's fiction is the equivalent of like shiny sassy night tv it's just it's all marketing right it's just what people enjoy and want to read no should i tell you what i think yeah. women's fiction is the equivalent to i think it's the equivalent to marvel superhero films hmm. where they know that there's a certain guaranteed amount of cash there so mm-hmm. instead of trying to broaden the marketing, they go, look at this. We're going to give you more of what you like. And they yeah. don't think, hang on, other people might like it too. That's what I think it's like. It wouldn't work quite so well if they just put a sticker on the front saying, just like blankety blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the sticker on the front should say, I mean, depending on what the book is, but it should say um, heartwarming, a heartwarming read, for example, if it's that, or it should say, this will make you laugh and laugh and laugh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but or even think- like, I, I don't know if you've had this with your kids yet too, but my again my youngest is that if he sees that something's got five stars on Netflix like it doesn't really matter like where the five stars come from he's like oh that's got five stars oh I see that's interesting so he's bamboozled by the five stars rather than so maybe we just like you know slap those on unlike that caller to going live years ago that wasn't bamboozled by five stars (laughs) (laughs) classic bit of telly yeah if you don't know what we're talking about go find it on youtube we haven't got time to discuss it with you (laughs) Uh, but it's worth it It, it'll be it's a rabbit hole worth falling down yeah i mean i have to say i think there's still nothing i know it's still been a really weird year but there's few things that give me as much pleasure as having unlimited time in a bookshop to browse and to pick mm. up books, mm. to look at the covers, mm. to read mm. the first few sentences, read the back. There's something very blurb. serene about it, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And also, you know, likewise, I, I love getting a recommendation, but I also just love picking something up and going, oh, yeah, actually, I'm really in the mood for this today. Great. What do you do when you're not in the mood for it? I've had that a lot recently. Well, with reading. Yeah. And, and what I mean is, it's not the book. I know the book's good. I've already into the book. And I'll pick it up at night. I think I'll do a chapter before bed, but my head's too frazzled. So I'm just reading the same words over and over again. I'm not making any progress down the page. Mm read a cookbook <laughs> is that what you're doing sir? yeah I have a cookbook at, at the side of my bed um or I have a kind of stack of magazines as well that I'll find easier sometimes to dip into um yeah I'll tell you I'll something that's going to make you yeah. well gel <laughs> okay have you seen the film the hand of god yet on Netflix no I haven't so is that the Maradona Paolo, one yeah 
Paolo Sorrentino, and it's based loosely on his life. And the idea is that Maradona saved his life because when Maradona signed for Napoli in the 80s, he, as a teenage boy, he was hooked and he went to every game. And the one game he goes, this isn't a spoiler because he's well documented about his life, but the one game he goes to, his parents um, both die in the family home from carbon monoxide poisoning. And had he been there, he would have died too. Mm. So it's purely that he was out of the house. So he says that Maradona saved his life by attracting him to the football. But there's loads more to the film than that. That's one small element to this film. But the reason I mention it is that it's obviously set in Italy. It's in, in Napoli. And the grandmother is always cooking in the film. And she's got this kind of recipe book. That Anyway, they've turned the recipe book into an actual cookbook. And they <laughs> phoned me and they said, Paolo, really enjoyed the interview that you did with him for the radio the other night. Would you like a copy of the cookbook? So it's on its way. So if the recipes are great, I'll send you them. Yeah. Wow, that is a nice nice yeah. story. Lucky. Yeah. yeah, lovely. And I thought, I've got to mention it to you because I don't really have that many. Most of my cookbooks are Jamie Oliver, apart from the ones that you've sent me. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. I bet there's going to be some incredible recipes in there. How I hope nice so. thing. I, yeah, I hope so. And I hope they're old traditional Italian, you know, passed down through generations type recipes. I think yeah. that's, what, that's what I'm expecting from the film. That's what's in the film. Oh, I'm intrigued to watch it now. Thanks for the tip. Um, yeah. and You're welcome. <laughs> See, before we go further down any other rabbit holes, um, thank you for listening to my babbling at Jodie Pico. Uh, and I hope it was interesting. And we'll be back very soon with Giovanna Fletcher. You're my favourite babbler. I don't know how to be any other way, so sorry. You be you, girlfriend. <laughs> you be you. Yeah, Isn't that I what will. you say these days? <laughs> <laughs>